All right, good evening, good evening, everyone. We are holding my chapter 19. Last chapter was chapter 18. And chapter 18 began a, a new subject in the Tanya. Until now, until chapter 18, the Yalt Rebbe was teaching us <clears throat> the art of developing a healthy relationship with God. And if the word God is a turnoff for you, <laughs> you could call it getting more in touch with yourself, connecting more with Judaism, with your spirituality. But the idea is that one needs to put in the work to develop an emotional bond with God. And this is key. A key is that a, a Jew needs a relationship with God. And that's something which needs to be developed and worked on and nurtured and fostered until it is strong or at least strong enough to make us, to make a difference in our lives. And the difference we are looking for is the code, the code word is a Bainini. We want to be a Bainini. And a Bainini basically means is that our soul is not being dragged in the mud by our animal soul, right? Our animal soul doesn't call the shots of our lives. The animal soul doesn't dictate our lives. The animal soul doesn't control our lives, but the opposite, we control our lives. We are in control of our own inner beast. We tame the animal, we direct the animal, we channel that energy, and we put the animal soul, We sorry, we put the divine soul, we put the godly soul in the driver's seat, at least in our conscious life, right? That in what we're doing, in what we're saying, and in what we're actively thinking, in the conscious life, in the behavioral part of life, the godly soul is calling the shots. That's the level of control we want. That is our... Uh, our goalpost for success and the way to do that is it's essentially very simple <laughs> you got to simply spend the time to work yourselves up intellectually emotionally to feel committed enough and to give yourself enough enough energy enough gas in the tank for your godly soul to assert its powers chapter 18 the altrebbe says that but i want to teach you now a new technique a new strategy until now, we've been learning about the need to create and develop and nurture a relationship with God and a passion for living a holy life. The author of it now says, but there's also another thing over here. You actually also already have a passion. You already have a relationship that you were born with. So there's two uh, there's two strategies. One is to climb the mountain, to earn the relationship, to create that relationship. And the other strategy is tap into the relationship that you always have, that you always had. You were born with it. And the Alter Rebbe teaches us about this concept. It's called the hidden love, the dormant love. And the basic idea of this is that every single Jew is born with a love to God. Okay, what does that really mean? So in chapter 18, we looked about a very beautiful chapter, right? That simply by virtue of the fact that we are the children of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rifkel, Rachel, Aleah, simply because we are the children of our forefathers and our foremothers, right? Is that how you say it? Patriarchs and matriarchs. They gifted us with a divine soul, a holy soul, not a natural soul. The rest of the universe is natural. This table is natural. This building is natural. That tree is natural. Every human being is natural. And a Jew is a hybrid. We're natural and we're holy. We have a holy soul. Like we're the aliens. We're really, we're spiritual aliens. We don't belong here. We come from a different sphere. Our souls are the only things in our existence, which are which are aliens. We're the ETs, <laughs> spiritually speaking, right? Because we are the only thing in existence the only creation in this physical universe which is actually not a part of the physical universe we have holy souls we come from spiritual worlds it's a very very powerful concept and therefore it is simply we were born with it with that god god's presence god's light god himself is shining within our souls and therefore every jew believes in god we don't believe in God because we were educated or indoctrinated or taught to believe in God. 
It's not because we're sophisticated. It's not because we're theologians. A Jew believes in God simply because God is the reality of your soul. It's your reality. And it touches the very deepest point of your soul. And therefore, a Jew is even willing to die for God. Which is uh, the most radical expression of this idea. The author says, just think about it. We're not talking about the religious Jews. We're not talking about the rabbis. We're not talking about the, about the very well-educated Jews. We're not talking about the jihadists, <laughs> you know, whatever, of the Jewish people. We're talking about even the people who didn't know anything, the people who are irreligious, brazen sinners. Their whole life, they couldn't care less about God. But all of a sudden comes a moment of truth that they face the test of giving up their life for God, for the belief in God. And all of a sudden, the Jewish soul can't resist but say, I'd rather die than deny the existence of God then deny that I belong to God. That's power. That's the hidden love. But we still have to understand a little bit more what this love is about. We also have to understand why, think about it, if we possess such a powerful love for God, what's the obvious question? Why don't I feel it? <laughs> right? Am I the only one who doesn't feel this love every day? So just think about it. I'm ready to die for God, but for some reason today I don't feel it. It's the most powerful love, and I don't even know it. That's very weird. Why don't I know it? We're basically saying, you don't love anything as much as you love God. It's, it's very radical. Even more than yourself. You know, you love yourself. We humans will do anything to save ourselves. Why? Because we inherently, innately love ourselves. And we're saying that even that love would be willing to sacrifice. The love for God is the strongest love that a human is possible is, is, is even potentially able to have. And this is not theory, this is historical fact. The Jew will willingly walk happily, gladly, proudly to his death because this is the love that I cannot, I can't compromise this love. And you know what the crazy irony is? And we don't even know it. I don't feel it today. How could that be? <laughs> How could that be? I don't feel it now, but I, I, I'll do the most craziest reaction when, when push comes to shove. So this is part of what we still need to unpack. This is still the enigma of this love. We still have a few questions to ask. So let us begin chapter 19. And the uh, title of this chapter is The Dormant Love. We're going to be talking a lot about the nature of this love and what does it mean that it's dormant. It's a hidden love. What does it mean that it's hidden? Either you love or you don't love. Here we're saying you do love, but it's hidden, which means you have the love, but you don't know it. Again, it's a, this is a very ironic to say. What does this even mean? We have to understand this. So part one of the chapter is called The Properties of the Love. You see, every love has to have a, a property has to have a definition or to use the hebrew wording every love has to have a want what do you want every love is essentially saying i want something i want to achieve something what do you want why do you want every love comes with 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 some trappings to it so here we're saying you love god well what do i love why do i love what's the nature of this love You say, I love ice cream. Okay, you know, define the love for me. So the definition of the love is that I love feeling good. And when ice cream touches my tongue, it tastes really good. And I feel good. So therefore, what I want is ice cream, but I don't, I don't want to hug ice cream. I want to have ice cream in some container. <laughs> either an edible container or a non-edible container, and then I put it in my mouth. That's my form of bonding with my object of love because it makes me feel good. And it tastes really good for me. You know, that's okay. That we're, we're defining the love here. So we're saying, you love God. Well, tell me a little bit about this love. What? Why? How? That's the question here. So that's what we're going to be explaining. That's what we're, what we're going to be learning right now. 
So let's begin chapter 19. Let's read inside part one, the properties of the love. And dear friends, I want to get, it's a little bit of, a, it's a nice amount of reading. And it's even a little bit deep today. We'll see what we get to touching into some deep stuff. But I want to get to the end of today's handout because I don't want this chapter to take us more than two classes. Okay. But today is the harder part of the chapter. So here it goes. To explain this phenomenon of the dormant love further. Let's, let's explain this love. It is necessary to first explain clearly the analogy that is stated in Proverbs that the soul of Adam is a candle of God. This is a verse, a verse in Proverbs. The soul of Adam, Adam means human, is a candle of God. Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. It's an analogy. Your soul is like a candle. So what does that mean? Every analogy contains a lot of meaning here. So of course, there's many layers of meaning. Many, many layers of meaning. And if you look in the commentary in Proverbs, you'll right away see some, uh, some, some of the of the uh, interpretations of this analogy. What is the meaning that the soul of Adam is a candle of God? So the author starts explaining. Uh, number one, Adam is a reference to the Jewish people. Interesting idea. The Talmud says this. Um, in the Hebrew language, there are different words for human. There's Adam, there's Enosh, there's Gever, there's Ish. Uh, the word Adam, whenever that word is used in scripture, it refers specifically to the Jewish people, generally speaking. All right? So generally, the word Adam means all humanity, but specifically, this is the term that's used to refer to the Jews within uh, within the human race. So the Altima says this verse is speaking specifically about the Jewish people. And the Altima continues, the soul of a Jew is here compared to the light of a candle that by its nature continually flickers upwards. Oh, this is the idea. Like Shelley just said, if you take a candle, no matter what way you turn that flame, flame is always going up. Which is very interesting. It goes against all of nature. Everything in nature, there's two, I, everything in nature has two things. Number one, everything in nature stays calm, stays put, unless there's a force compelling it to move. Yeah, but even water that moves, it moves, but <laughs> the moment it reaches the lowest space, it, it, right it, there it rests it becomes stagnant and everything is going down everything is going down and everything wants to settle like we say in english settle down that's nature everything wants to settle and everything wants to go down a fire goes against both of those rules number one the fire is not looking to go down a fire is always striving pulling upward and number two well, I guess that's both. Number one, it is always moving. A fire is always flickering. A fire is always restless. A fire is never just saying, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to lay down here and take it easy here. No. A fire is always moving. And where is it moving? Moving upward. Or in other words, if you look at a flame and maybe like try to like uh, understand the psychology a little bit, like, you know, try to listen to the flame. What you would see is that the flame is restless. Everything in this world is at such peace. This chair is sitting here. And this chair is not going anywhere. It doesn't even want to go anywhere. It's so comfortable where it is. You'll come back tomorrow, come back in a week, the chair is still going to be here. Everything in nature is just so comfortable where it is. Comes the fire and it's just so restless. It's like always trying to leave. The second the fire has an opportunity to let go of the wick, it does. What is this? You know, even the idea, you could try this. Make us make a large fire and then take a small fire and start bringing them close to each other. What happens is a small fire, as soon as it gets close enough to the big fire, it jumps over. You could you could see it. The small fire will jump off of its little wick. And jump into the big fire. A fire is on the move. A fire is restless. 
So Kabbalah explains to us what's happening. Very interesting. It does so because the light of the fire desires by its nature to detach from the wick and connect with its origin above. Within the fundamental element of fire that is below the orbit of the moon, as is explained in Eitzchai. Okay, let's we have to explain this a little bit. A little bit. This is an idea from Kabbalah, from the Eitzchai. A fire is the most, or one of the most, spiritual, physical existences. Meaning fire is physical, but at the same time, it is the most spiritual that we will ever experience within a physical existence. You even see it doesn't have it doesn't have a lot of the properties that are the hallmark of physical existences. It doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't really take up space. It exists in space, but doesn't take up space. It it it, it doesn't it it doesn't follow the laws of nature of volume. It could grow. It could decrease. You could separate it, right? One fire, there's no limit. There's no finite amount to any fire. There's no law of volume to it. And it, it just appears and disappears. It's like an energy that it, it, it's, it's sometimes spiritual. We could sometimes bring it into the physical realm. It's a very spiritual entity within our physical universe. And because fire is so spiritual, it senses its spiritual source. The fundamental element of fire, the source of fire, the spiritual source of fire is in the heavens below the orbit that the moon, below the sphere that the moon orbits within. Right, That's the exact location of the source, the elemental source of fire. Now there's no fire there, but that's a spiritual source of fire. Just under the orbit of the moon, of the sphere of the moon. And the fire is not comfortable being here in its physical existence. What it wants to do is to jump off of that wick and return back to its spiritual source. This is what the Kabbalah says. And this is its nature. Let's keep on reading. Yes! This means that its light would be extinguished. <laughs> what happens to a flame once it leaves the wick? It stops shining. It stops being a flame. Not only would it cease to shine at all below, but even above as well. Its light would be subsumed out of existence within its origin. It loses its identity once it goes up. But nevertheless, that is what the flame desires by nature. So let's think about it. What this flame is doing is an act of suicide. <laughs> it's an act of self-annihilation. Right now, you're a beautiful flame. You exist in this room. You have this function. You're giving off light. You're giving off warmth. Who knows what? And you have a sense of being. You're something. You exist. What the flame wants, as noble as it sounds, it comes with a big price. What are you doing, flame? <laughs> you want to go up, but going up means you don't exist anymore. It means you just simply become one within your larger source, but Right now, you're a you. But the flame, simply, this is its in instinct. This is its nature. It just wants to go back up, despite the price. That is a flame. This is what Kabbalah teaches us is happening in every single flame. And we could even see it, uh, you know, somewhat psychologically, you know. <laughs> this is the experience of a flame. Yes, Shelly. So when you say that these are the properties of fire... Can we also say that this is, are you saying that these are also the properties of one's soul, of our oh, soul? We're, so we're getting there. We're going we're gonna to build the analogy in a moment. Okay. Yeah, we're getting there. Okay. To, uh, to take off from where exactly where you're asking, Shelly, let's continue. In the same way, the nisham of a person, our soul, and the same applies to the lower dimensions of the soul, ruach and nefesh. It means not only the higher dimension of the soul, but on every level of the soul, even the lowest dimension of the soul. Our entire soul desires 
and longs by its nature to detach and depart from the body and connect to its origin and source within God, the life of all living beings, blessed be he. Ooh, this is what the soul wants. This is the this is the source of the idea of the Jewish restlessness. We Jews, there's a certain inner tension to the Jew. And this is this is the definition. We all have a body, and the body's going down. The body is natural. So the body is very comfortable. The body gravitates downward. It wants to stay where it is. It's looking for comfort. It's looking for its comfort space. A Jew is restless. There's a certain restlessness in a Jew. There's a certain tension in a Jew. The body is going down, but the soul is always tugging upward. And what's the soul saying? The soul is saying, I don't want to be in a body. I'm not looking for all these experiences. I want to go back up and connect with my source, the life of all living beings. I want to connect with the source of life. I don't want to be living life. I want to be in touch with real life, with God. So the soul is tugging upward. But just like the flame, what happens? The wick and the candle, the wax, holds the flame down. It tugs it down. It tethers it down. It says, no, as long as we're here, you've got to stay here. Until the flame finds an opportunity to let go and go back up. That's what happens with the body. The body, as long as there's a healthy body, the, it, 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 it tethers down the soul. But the soul, this is what it wants. The soul is always pushing upwards. It's not comfortable. It's moving. There's a tension. There, there, there's, there's, you see it. Just like a flame is moving. A, fl a flame is flickering. Our souls are flickering and it's pushing upwards. It's creating tension. This is just what the soul wants. And again, the altar uses the words by nature. This is what it wants by nature. This is how the soul is hardwired. So the altar says, yes. We're on page 150. Yes, true. By departing from the body, by departing from the body and being reabsorbed in its source, the soul will become an absolute nothingness. Its existence will be completely subsumed and nothing will remain of its original being and essence. But nevertheless, this is, this is its natural will and desire. Let's think about what happens to a soul when it goes up. Whatever your soul's life looks like right now changes completely if it leaves a body and goes back up to heaven and becomes one within its source. Your physical life ceases to be. Physical functionality ceases to be. This is not saying that the soul doesn't exist anymore above, but what it is saying is that you lose your existence as it is now. Right? Nothing will remain of its original being and essence. So this is a very interesting thing. What the soul wants is to not be. That's, that's radical. Everything in nature wants to be. Everything in nature wants to be even more. <laughs> right? How do I exist? How do I be healthy? How do I make more of myself? How do I feed more to myself? natural life all revolves around number one selfhood I want to just simply take care of myself and exist and there's also a law of inertia everything in nature just wants to simply exist as it is unless it needs to move I don't want to move if I'm forced to move I'll move but there's a law of inertia everything in nature even, even if there's a greater possibility by letting go of what it has now it doesn't want to do it I want to just be let me be. Here we're seeing that the soul has the total opposite nature. It wants to not be. You're saying, but, <laughs> but you're somebody now. Yeah, I don't need that somebody. I just want to connect with God. Come what may. Whatever the price is, I want that. This is the analogy. The soul and the flame. This is the nature of our souls. And the Altarba adds over here one very critical point. The Altarba keeps on using the word nature. 
This is the nature of the candle. This is the nature of the soul. What does it mean? What, what, what do we mean by the word nature? The word nature here has a very important idea. Let's keep on reading. A super-rational instinct. Says the Alter Rebbe. When we use the word nature here, we are borrowing that word as a description for anything that does not fit under the rubric of logic and reason. What does nature mean? When we say this is the way it is naturally, what we're saying is this is not the way this is because of a logical decision that it made or because of education or because of a rationale. Nature means this is simply the way it was hardwired, for the good or for the bad. That's what the word nature means. Why does a bird make a nest? Is it nature or is it just simply good strategy? Now, a nest is also good strategy, but that's not why a bird makes a nest. Why does a bird make a nest? It's nature. Nature means this is simply how it functions and it has nothing to do with logic and reason, which means no bird, the Tweety bird, doesn't go to little Tweety bird school and learn about the importance of building a nest because one day you're going to be a mommy and one day you're going to be laying eggs and you got to have a good safe place to put your eggs and you have a place where you could sit on your eggs. <laughs> and it doesn't go to engineering classes to learn how to build a good nest. It's interesting, right? Birds have good, very good engineering. As I know in general, if you don't, if you would give me a hundred different twigs and tell me to build a nest, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it you know, if you give me a whole year to do it. The birds somehow build beautiful nests. They live through years. I have a nest that's already out of use for a few years, but no matter how, what type of storm that is, that nest still, still stands there. You know, it's like hanging off my house. It's pretty amazing. How does the bird? It's, it's nature. It's how it was built. I once read there was a beaver, a little beaver that was saved. I don't know, out of... Uh, the beaver started building a dam indoors <laughs> for no good reason. It started to schlep things and just started to build a dam. There's no good reason to why to build a dam indoors. I don't know, they were saving a beaver. Maybe it was sick, like a little baby beaver. The way a beaver's brain works, the nature, this is not nurture, this is nature. It's hardwired, a beaver builds a dam. A bird builds a nest. Over. The Jewish soul, it's nature. This is not about strategy. This is not nurture. This is not education. This is simply the nature of the soul. It's just what it does, and it has nothing to do with logic and reason. So the author continues. Here, too, we mean to say that this will and desire of the soul isn't something logical or reasonable that could be explained in a way for us to understand. Rather, it's beyond the grasp of the mind and the understanding. What does the soul want? The soul simply wants to go back to God. But you could start arguing with the soul. Soul, I'm telling you, this is not a good idea. You're going to lose all your identity. You're talking Chinese to the soul. <laughs> this is not something that the soul decided upon based on an argument. This is its nature. It can't help itself. This is just how a Jewish soul functions. If you've got a, a Jewish soul, if you've got a holy Jewish soul, it can't help itself but say, I want to go back to God. That's it. You're born with it. So it's not reason. Rather, says the Alter Rebbe, it is the expression of the element of Chachma of the soul within which the light of the infinite God, blessed be He, is found. God is shining in your soul. It's shining in Chachma. And you can't help but react to that nature within your soul. There's God in your soul. You feel your source. And you can't help but say, I don't want to just be a something. I want to be part of the real thing. That's what the soul is saying. And this is, you know, this is the spiritual reason, not to digress too much, but you really see it. Jews are a little bit more on edge than other people. <laughs> uh, you know, we speak about this in the tiny classes. There's a certain restlessness that's built into the Jew. A Jew can't just be. Everything in nature is so comfortable to just be. Let the status quo be the status quo. Let's just enjoy life. Same old, you know, go through the same patterns, same comfortabilities. And there's something built into the Jewish psyche that pushes a Jew to be a little bit restless, to be a little bit nervous. Rabbi? Yes, Joel. 
uh, when they say chachma, do they mean that the um, that is just a uh, the first thing that the, the soul comes in contact hasn't organized it or evaluated it yet? It's the first the first thought that's ingrained in him. Is that what you mean by that? Or what no. I mean is chachma is the source of new ideas, but chachma is much larger than that. The real definition of chachma is the soul's ability to transcend itself and to be in touch with something higher than itself, which is true about learning new ideas, and it's also true about where God's truth shines within you, where a Jew is able to transcend his own sense of self, and because a Jew is able to transcend his own sense of self, God is able to shine there. And a Jew is able to get in touch with God's truth, not the way you think about God, not your perception of God, but God's truth, the unfiltered truth of God shining within you. That's what happens with Chachma. And because God is shining within us, the Jewish soul can't help but wants to go above. And this is, okay, all right. Let's continue. We're towards the bottom of page 150. And the altar but now teaches us a very, very important principle, a very important idea, but it's a little bit deep. The altar but says like this, and dear friends, it's a bit of a deep piece over here, but follow along with me. What we just described, this experience of the soul that we've just described is the quintessential experience of holiness. This is the definition. This is the boilerplate experience of holiness. What does holiness mean? What is the experience of holy? What does the word holy mean? What is holiness? What makes a person holy? What, what makes an experience holy? What is holiness? The altarist says, what we just said, that is holiness. This is literally the definition of holiness. Let's read. This is the experience of holiness. Says the Alter Rebbe, this is a fundamental principle concerning the realm of holiness. All that makes something holy is that it is drawn from Chachma, which is called the supernal holiness. Okay, this is in Kabbalistic language. You want to know what holiness is? Holiness is anything that taps into Chachma, the holy Chachma. So we have Chachma within our own little universe, within our own psyche. We have our soul power of Chachma. And there's also Chachma, which is one of the energies with which God created the world. Chachma, that's holiness. Now, okay, <laughs> let's try to explain that uh, a little bit more down to earth. What does that mean, that Chachma is holiness? Why Chachma? All right, let's decipher this. Why? This is because Chachma's very existence is subsumed within the light of the infinite God, blessed be He, who is invested within it. And it does not exist as an independent thing for itself, as explained earlier. Dear friends, what is Chachma? What is Chachma within our own life? And what is Chachma also within the Sefirot, within the model of God's creation? Chachma is not its own thing. Chachma doesn't say, I got my own agenda. Chachma says, I am simply here for God to express Himself within and through me. I've got no other agenda but that. Chachma is the experience of utter humility, of transcending the ego. Chachma says, I, 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 I'm not here to filter you. I'm not here to change you. I'm not here to interpret you. I'm simply here to be a home for God. It's not about me. It's not about my what I think. It's not about what I feel. It's not about my own ego. This is Chachma. This is what Chachma does in creation. Chachma is the beginning of creation, which is where God's energy shines into the world. Bina and Das and Chesed and Gevura, they start changing. 
they start interpreting the energy of God to start, to start the process of creation. Chachma is raw. Chachma doesn't have an agenda. Chachma doesn't have its own tools of interpretation. Chachma is simply saying, shine in me. I, I'm not here. <laughs> make, believe as if, right? make believe as if I'm not here. It's just a conduit. It doesn't come with a sense of ego, with a sense of self. And that is also what we feel in our own existence. All of our ten soul powers are there to give a very subjective experience. How do I understand this? Do I understand it? Do I agree with it? Is it meaningful to me? How do I feel about this? It's all about me. It's all about how you interpret it. Chachma is the place within our own souls that says, I'm not here to interpret. I'm here to rise above myself and to allow something higher than myself to enter into me. That is holiness. Holiness is when we make space for God and God is able to enter therein. That is holy. Holy is when we rise above the ego. Ego is the opposite of holiness. The sense of self is itself the antithesis of holiness. Holiness means God's presence can be here because I made space for Him. There's a beautiful Hasidic line. Could be you've heard this one. Where is God found? Wherever you let Him in. That's the truth. That's holy. Unholiness. Klippa is saying, I exist. It's saying, I've got my own agenda. I've got my own needs, my wants. I've got my own life. That is not holy. Holy is bitl. That's the Hebrew word. Bitl means an awareness of a larger context where you make space for the larger truth of God. Chachma is that. When we tap into our Chachma, that's holy. And dear friends, because we all have Chachma inside of us, our godly soul has Chachma, we have a point of truth of holiness within us constantly. Every Jew is holy. But this is not just about us, this is how holiness works. Holiness is Chachma because Chachma is that. Make space for God because it doesn't come as a something. Page 151, let's continue. And as we have explained earlier, this is why Chachma, it, is referred to as Koach, the power of Ma, what? The word Chachma is really two Hebrew words. Koach Ma, the power of what? Meaning an, an inquisitiveness and an openness to what stands higher than the self. The experience of transcending the ego. When we transcend our own ego, when we, when we open ourselves up to a higher truth, not in the pursuit of our own sense of self and our own sense of meaning or purpose or fulfillment, we open ourselves up to the real truth, to what's higher than us. That's holy. That's holiness. And that comes from Chachmah. And the altar continues, this paradigm is the polar opposite of the realm of Klippa and the Sitra Achra, from which emerge the souls of the nations of the world who are self-serving. Klippa. Klippa means the opposite of holiness, unholiness. Sitra Achra literally means the other side. So what makes something unholy? Does it have to be bad? Does it have to be diabolical? Does it have to be a force of destruction? The answer is no. In Jewish spirituality, you know what's unholy? What's unholy is something that is, instead of focused on what's above, is focused inward. That's klipa. All of our world is klipa. Every other human being, which is not a Jew, is part of the natural world. And what is the law of nature? Every existence is looking out for itself. That is nature. Human nature, and by the way, our animal souls are also klipa. We're a hybrid, you remember? So our godly souls are holy. Our godly souls don't want to exist. Our godly souls are not interested in ego. They're not interested in perpetuating the self. But klipa, all of klipa is self-serving. All of klipa is saying, what's in it for me? It sees all of life from the perspective of its own existence and the, from the perspective of its own ego. <laughs> we don't have to... Um, 
We don't have to beat a dead horse, but we all know exactly what this means. Every human being, unfortunately, it's one of the human weaknesses of our animal soul, is that we are so self-consumed even when we don't like it. We can't help ourselves. That's where jealousy comes from. Jealousy means you made a buck, you just stole that buck from me. It makes no sense. The ego is, is just so self-consumed. And anything that it does is all about me. The ego says, oh, you, we should do that. Well, what's in it for me? Is it going to make my life better? Am I going to make money? Am I going to get pleasure from it? Okay, then I'll do it. If not, then I'm not interested. Every person works that way. Every animal works that way. Every plant works that way. Everything in nature is there and serving itself. That's Klippa. This is, let's continue. This is the mark of the realm of Klippa. Saying only, give and give. As Esau said to Jacob, pour into me. Give and give. It's a verse from Proverbs describing a leech. What does a leech say? A leech goes and bites into whatever it can to suck up blood. And the leech gives nothing back in return. It's saying, give me, give me. It's all at once. That's what Klippa says. Klippa says, give and give. And this is what Esau says to Jacob. When Esau came back from his hunting trip, and he was uh, very hungry, and he saw Jacob making a lentil soup. We all know the story. He bought out the, he bought the lentil soup from his brother Jacob. That was a bad deal. He sold his birthright, right? <laughs> and then what does he say to Jacob? He says the word halhitani, which means pour into me. And Rashi says, you know what it means? Esau said, I'm so hungry, I'm going to open up my mouth. Oh, and I want you to pour that soup down my throat. Just pour it into me. That's klipa. The ego, the sense of self, the sense of I am the center of the universe. I, the, my whole paradigm of living is the world revolves around me. And you know what, dear friends? Little babies are born, and they all have this experience, right? Little babies, as cute as they are, they are a brute animal soul, untamed, unchecked, and uh, they're so immature that they just don't even realize it. So little babies, the whole world, the whole world is, it's mine. It's my, my label walks around the whole day. It's mine, mine, mine. Everything is mine. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> his babysitter, he goes to a playgroup. So the, the woman there told me, he says he realized that label, he gets very defensive if anybody touches any of his toys. He starts screaming, mine, my toy, my toy. And she realized that even if he touched it in the morning, for the rest of the day it's his. I played with it at 9 a.m., 3.30, it's still mine. <laughs> And he walks around saying, my tati, this is my tati. He says about me, you know, hey, don't touch my father. It's my tati. We get older, you know, <laughs> let's be honest. We're just like babies. Essentially, our minds and our hearts work the same way. We just make it sound a little bit more sophisticated. We've, also, we're, we've all got an animal soul. Let's be honest. We experience klipa. That's klipa. Klipa means the assertion of the ego to the point that your whole life revolves around this paradigm of self-serving. I'm just self-obsessed. I'm self-absorbed. Not in a negative way, not in a narcissistic way. It's just that's life. And that means you're not in touch with God. That means you're not in touch with a larger context. That means that your whole life is just focused inward. You don't see yourself in the larger picture. You don't see yourself living in God's world. You see yourself living in your own world. That's it. That is klipa, and that is holiness. Klipa is the ego. Holiness is the openness, the transcendence of the self. This is the very definition. The altar continues. This existence, the existence of klipa, is an isolated self-contained, independent somebody, as explained above. This is the opposite of Chachma. Let's think about it. What's Klippa? What is the ego? What is arrogance? It is a sense of isolation. It is a sense of I live, I'm for me. It's not, a, it's not, it's not interconnectedness. It's like the leech. Give, give, give me, give me, give me. I'm not here to give back. It's all about me. It's self-containment. The ego says, I've got it. I'm good. 
I could take care of myself. I live my own life. I don't need you. It's about independence, right? Again, the same idea, I could take care of myself. I'm a thing. I'm a somebody, right? This is the ego. This is klipa. This is klipa. The opposite of Chachma. Chachma is all about opening oneself up, saying, I don't have a sense of self. Open oneself up for God, and then God is actually there in your life. It's totally not about ego. There's no sense of self. And therefore, says the Alter Rebbe, the realm of Klippa, if you open up Kabbalah, if you open up the Zohar, Klippa is referred to as dead. That's death. Spiritual death is in Klippa. Because Chachma gives life. True life is only accessible through Chachma. And as the verse states, void of Chachma, they are dead. If you're not plugged into Chachma, if you're not plugged into the humility of transcendence and connecting to God from a place of Bittel, where you rise above the self and live with that space so you're in God's world, you're in a place of spiritual death. And there's a lot to say about this. What does it mean that you're dead? <laughs> you're alive. What it means is, you know what real life is? Let's think about it as a human body. A healthy human body is where every single cell of your body works together. That's, that's a healthy body. A healthy body is where you don't feel the specific parts of your body. It's not healthy if you ever feel one specific part of your body. You should only feel that I am here. But really, the body itself has billions of cells, hundreds of different body parts. But health, life, is when there's a synergy, a unity. Oh, it's, it's one unit. No one part of this body stands out by itself and asserts its own sense of I, its own ego. Which is interesting. Uh, the healthy body is when every part of the body is not felt. What happens when you start feeling a part of your body? What does that mean? It hurts. <laughs> you don't want to feel your nose. You want a nose, you just don't want to feel it. If you feel your nose, oh, that's not good. You don't want to feel your toenail. That's an ingrown toenail. You don't want to feel your knee. You just want it to be there. That's health. Health is when you're not feeling the pieces, but they're part of one force of life. There's a larger force of life that is unifying this whole edifice and making it pump with health. Now let's talk about that in the macro. We are all one little person, one little cell in God's world. Health is when we rise above our own little sense of self and we plug into the force of life that is driving all of reality to the point that we don't even feel ourselves. That's healthy. Don't feel yourself. You don't want to feel yourself too much. You want to be plugged into a higher force. Just like any one body part, when it starts feeling, you start feeling it, eh, 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 not good. You don't want to feel your sense of self. The sense of self is a sense of isolation. It's all about me. You're not working together. You're not in touch. There's not a sense of interconnectedness. When there's no interconnectedness, you become a leech. You're leeching on society. <laughs> and you become separate. It's a sense of separateness from all of reality. So dear friends, says the Alter Rebbe, every single Jew has a soul. In that soul is Chachma. In that Chachma you feel God and you don't feel your ego. And therefore, at the very core of your existence, you are not interested in your sense of ego. You are simply interested in connecting and bonding with God. That is the truth of a Jew. Why? Because we all have a godly soul. And that godly soul by nature, not by nurture, not because the soul is very knowledgeable and sophisticated and got a good education. Nothing to do with that. We're not talking about that at all. It's a nature. It, it's holy, and it has this holy tendency to not be interested in its own existence and to connect with God. Every Jew has it, which is very powerful. What's the only problem? The only problem is, okay, if, we, if we're so holy, why don't I, why don't I feel it? Right? For heaven's sake, why don't I feel my inner holiness? This is such good stuff. We all know that we feel our animal soul. We feel it way too well. <laughs> 
every time our animal soul is hungry, oh boy, it gives a it gives a kvetch in our stomach. That's it. Our day is ruined, right? That's it. I'm, I cannot function till I eat till I eat dinner. It's like ridiculous. The animal soul has such a control in our life, and here the animal, the godly soul is holy, and has the force of the wick of the flame pushing upwards. Whoa, where, when, what, what? Well, why don't we feel it? So the Alter Rebbe says, well, generally speaking, unless you're a tzaddik, unless you're somebody who is very in control of your life, if you're not yet a bainani, a bainani is somebody who asserted his, um, a bainani is somebody who, here, one second, yeah, a bainani is somebody who has asserted the control of his, godly soul in his life until you're a bainani who's in control of your life your animal soul the default you is your is your animal soul and the octopus is simply that's what happens your animal soul gets so much control in your life that it ends up simply suffocating not to death <laughs> but it it, it, it outshouts the godly soul And uh, it, it puts, to use the words of the Yatarab, it puts the godly soul into exile. And exile means that you exist, but you can't express yourself. So you're, like you're in a straitjacket. A straitjacket doesn't mean you're weak. A straitjacket means you're very strong, but just right now you're all tied up. You can't express yourself. You can't assert your powers. And that is why, even though we have this tremendous love, it remains hidden. Because... If we're not yet a Bainini, the, the animal soul, uh, you know, uh, it just takes that control. And it puts the peace of God inside of us in a, some form of oppression, of suppression, of exile. Let's read that. Bottom page 151, the animal soul suppresses the holy love. The Altimus says the same experience of Klippa, the experience of all of nature, just like any other human being, applies to Rishayim, somebody who is not yet a Benini, a Russia, and sinful Jews, before their dormant love is activated through facing a test to sanctify God's name. Which means when we face a test, we'll learn about that next, next class, that's, that's a whole different ballgame. But on day-to-day -day life, somebody who's a Russia, somebody who sins, that means that we give control of our life to our animal soul uh, this is our experience that we live a life of klipa and we're not in touch with the inner force of holiness so let's continue every jew without exception has this divine spark shining through the chachma in their souls but they don't regularly sense it why because the chachma of their divine soul along with the divine spark of God's infinite light invested within the soul, are in a state of exile within their bodies. It's there. It's just an exile. Exile means it's there, it's, it's alive, it's healthy, it's well. It just right now cannot express itself. That's what exile means. I can't express myself. You now, my father, he coined a little phrase. He says, the Jewish soul never gets rusty, only dusty. Rusty means that it itself is corroding. It itself is getting bad. Dusty means it's a beautiful gem underneath. You just got to dust it off. But if there's too much dust, it just, it just hides and suppresses the beauty. So the author says, we all have this soul. It's, it's natural. It doesn't even need to be developed. It's just <laughs> no nurture is needed. It's there. The only problem is it's an exile. It's just getting dusty. The animal soul is able to assert its power and totally outshout any of the assertion of the, of the godly soul, the holiness. So that's what the author continues. The state of exile is due to their animal soul, which is from Kalipa, that is stationed in the left ventricle of the heart and is ruling and controlling their bodies. Who gets the control in somebody who's not a Bainini. If you're not a Bainini, that means your animal soul has control. And that control of the animal soul means that it's, it's able to put the godly soul into exile.
This is the Kabbalistic mystery of the exile of the Shekhinah as discussed earlier. The Shekhinah is God's presence. We all have God's presence. We all have Shekhinah in our own soul and the godly presence in our own souls in exile. The godly, the animal soul, the klipa is putting it into exile, is suppressing it. And the author says, and that is why this love that is harbored by the divine soul, whose only will and desire is to bond with God, the life of all life, may he be blessed, is called a dormant, hidden love. Oh, the love of the godly soul is called hidden. You know why? This is why. This is because it is submerged and hidden, clothed within a sack of klipa in the case of sinful Jews. Right? Let's be honest. We're, 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 you know, we're, we're not tzaddikim. If only we would be a bainani. And if we're not a bainani, that means that we sin. We have moments of weakness. And those moments of weakness means that, we're, that the animal soul is in the driver's seat. And the animal soul being in the driver's seat means that we don't sense this love. This is, this is the state of existence. This is very normal. And the author says, and it's from this klipa, that a delusional spirit enters them into the Jew, inciting them to sin. As the rabbis of the Talmud said, no person sins unless a delusional spirit enters him. So what happens is the klipa comes from the animal soul, and it starts putting our godly soul into exile. And then we start getting this delusional idea that sinning is a good idea is an okay idea. And the author says, that's why this love is hidden. Oh, but what we're about to learn in the rest of chapter 19 is what gets our soul to just come out with a show of force, break free, and come out into the open. Like a lion who's raging. And then the question is going to be, how do we leverage this hidden love, which is usually just buried somewhere deep inside, how do we access that? How do we leverage that power on a day-to-day basis? But for that, we're going to have to wait to learn more. But this is the idea. Now we understand what this love is about. It's not a love that is looking for pleasure, fulfillment, even spiritual fulfillment. It is simply the nature of the soul that says, it's the Holy Spirit. I just want to be one with God. It's not about me. It's not about my own ego. It's not about what I get out of it. It's not even about my paradise that I get. I don't care about anything. I just want to be one with God. And we looked about the idea why it's hidden. It's hidden because, uh, you know, unless you're a tzaddik and unless you're a bainani, if you're still in the category of a Russia, that means that your animal soul is asserting its power and it puts the power of this godly soul in exile. And uh, that's where we start living the delusional life of separation from God, the delusional life of Klippa. But, um, but this is a cliffhanger because the rest of the chapter teaches us how our soul breaks free. And then from there, the question is going to be, how do we make this into something that we could tap into at least a little bit on a daily basis to live with it? But, for, but dear friends, for that, we're going to have to wait until next class. So I want to thank you all. I want to wish you all a wonderful evening. Uh, when it says here, this is the Kabbalistic mystery of the exile of the Shekhinah, as discussed earlier, and the Shekhinah, is that the um, the presence of God in our soul? Yeah. Is that what that is, the presence the of Shekhinah God? Shekhinah generally refers to the divine presence in the world. And over here we're saying, oh, but there's also the, the, the Kabbalistic mystery is that it happens in you also. In your soul, okay. okay. The meaning of this really is the 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 source of this idea that there's the Shechina went into exile is a teaching from our sages, which says that when the Jewish people were exiled into Rome, the divine presence followed them into exile, which is a very beautiful teaching. We felt God's presence with us in Jerusalem when we had a holy temple. And God didn't say, okay, you're going to Rome, goodbye. I'll wait for you again. You know, when you guys come back here, we'll meet up again. God went with the Jews. And so to speak, whatever that means, God went into exile. And when a Jew is hurting in exile, God is also hurting in exile. God is with you in that experience, in the pain and the oppression and the suffering. And the Kabbalistic mystery of this idea is that that also happens within us. That the divine presence within us sometimes gets goes into exile by our own force of Rome our own animal soul. Um, 
But okay, but it's this is the low, and we're about to go to the high to learn about how the godly soul is able to assert itself again, and that will be later on.